Hi friends, this is Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to the Unchained Gospel Podcast, where we let the lion out of its cage in order to set the captives free from theirs. Over the course of the next seven episodes, we will be going verse by verse through the book of Colossians. So let's dive in. Chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, This is coming off of just speaking about how Jesus was the creator of all things, and he existed before anything else, and he has preeminence over all things. It says, for in him, uh, one translation says, for it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness uh, of God would dwell. So in the body of Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is that which he gives us, the Spirit of Christ that raised him from the dead is what he gave to us when he came down uh, or when he came back to life before he ascended. Uh, he breathed on the, the disciples the Holy Spirit. And then at Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit to fill them to go out and make disciples, which is what we're called to do. And it pleased God that in Christ would be the entirety of the Godhead. And it says in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it elaborates a little bit and it says, Uh, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So not only, as we looked at last week, is Jesus Christ above all things, but in Christ dwells the entire Trinity, and then Christ comes and lives inside of us. So not only does God humble himself by associating with us in any way, but he allows, he puts on our form essentially so that we are his hands and feet to the world and we have been given a calling and an authority to go out into the world and to preach the gospel and to see lost people be saved from their sin Uh, and it goes on it says and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross the fullness of god made its home in christ's body When Jesus died on the cross and was lifted up, his arms were spread wide. If you can see the picture, the painting. And it was almost as if he was inviting all of his creation back into fellowship with him. You know, it says uh, the, the famous quote about our sins being separated us. How far are they separated? From one scarred hand to the other. You know, the... That's how far the East is from the West. You know, that song that's sung by uh, Casting Crowns. But when we look at that, we see Christ not only spread... How much does Jesus love us this much? He is opening his arms, inviting us to come in and to take our comfort in Christ. And when it says that all things are going to be reconciled to him, we looked at it last week in Romans 8 when it talks about how even the creation was subjected to the corruption because of sin. Because mankind fell in the garden, everything started on the, uh, the path of entropy, I think is the word, where everything just has a, a limited lifespan and starts to decay. And the creation itself is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed because that will mean that we're going to be redeemed, we'll receive our eternal form, and that the creation will receive the new earth, the new heavens. And uh, what's so amazing about that is that some people, unfortunately, will not receive that invitation back to God, even though he has made a way for all people to reconcile themselves to God. When we sinned, sin was the rebellious act of Adam and Eve deciding that they knew what God meant for them 
as opposed to God knowing what was best for them. And we talked about that last week, about how God has all authority. Who are we to wake up each day and say, I have the authority to do what I want? It's God that has the authority. But because of mankind's decision to rebel against him and to not submit to his authority, we are separated from him. Like a divorced couple, they cite irreconcilable differences, which we can argue about that all night long. But the point is, is the idea of reconciliation is two things that were torn apart. And we know that for, for, for the sake of what we're talking about, marriage, they, it says what God has joined together, let not man tear asunder. When people get divorced and that thing is torn, no one can ever believe that that could be brought back together. Well, mankind was God's chosen wife. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament that the church is the bride of Christ. And when we are apart from God, when we're rebelling against him, we have irreconcilable differences. And we can't come back to God except for through the way that he provided, which is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And that's what he's talking about here. It says, in the very shedding of his blood on the cross, he made a way for man. Essentially, the blood of Jesus Christ greased the skids for man to get back to God. That's how it was made for God. Uh, that's how God intended for it to be. And sadly, there are so many that reject that invitation, even though it's God's intent for all to be saved. In verse 21, and you who were once alienated, this is what we were talking about with that separation. We were aliens and hostile in our mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus Christ's death is not some transient spiritual thing that you know, it's a, it's a nice allegory that is in the Bible. It's a storybook and, and people get used to it and they see it and they forget that it actually took place, that God actually took on the form of a man and suffered smashing his hand with a hammer, kicking, a, you know, stubbing his toes, uh, you know, getting gashes and sweating and, and just living on earth in the flesh. And it says that he had to be made like his brethren it says in the book of Hebrews that he had to be made like his brethren in order to provide a way to empathize with them, which is really interesting that God chose to do that. God could have just said, sin is done, but he actually chose to live among human beings to see what it was like to experience the effects of sin. Not that he would sin himself, but to see, you know, when Lazarus died and it says that Jesus wept because he was feeling personally the effects of what sin leads to, which is disease and death and separation from God. And it says that in his flesh and by him dying on the cross in his body, it was in order to present you and me holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, you, you might be saying, you don't know what I did today. You don't know what I did right before I got here. According to Jesus Christ, when we place our faith in him, we are holy and blameless and above reproach. That means that anybody can accuse us of wrongdoing, and they may be right, and most likely they are right. But when God looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ reconciling that, that uh, marriage, as it were, that was torn apart by sin, being brought back together. And the best part about the reconciliation of Jesus Christ, it's not like when you drop your mug, your favorite mug, and you glue the handle back on, and it's never quite the same. You're always, it's very delicate. You, you're like, don't use that mug. You put it in the back of the cabinet so no one can see that it's all cracked. You don't let your guests come over. I have an, a Hulk Hogan mug that I've had since I was eight, and it's my favorite mug, and I don't want to jinx it, but uh, I know that's totally contradictory to talk about Jesus and then talk about the jinx, but 
It, I've had it for 23 years. I'm 31 years old, and it hasn't broken. And I'll say it because I believe that it will not break. I have faith. But when we do that, and when we think of something being taken apart, and in this case where sin violently ripped us apart from God, it's not like it was an amicable split and everybody's happy and they see each other on the weekends. No, it was, it was sin tearing mankind from God's presence. And you think that when God brings it back together, there's always going to be remnants of, the, of what was separated. But with God, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Behold, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things will become new. And what that means is that you can't see those cracks. You don't see where the terror happened because as far as God's concerned, it never happened. Praise God for that. It says in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So what Paul is talking about, he's referring back to something he said at the beginning of the chapter, where he's saying that you, I've heard of your faith in Christ, your love for the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. They had placed their faith in Jesus, and as a result, they knew where their destiny was. They knew that they were sitting with Christ in the heavenlies, as it says in Ephesians 2. So that that led them to have a stronger faith and to love the saints because they knew who they were living for. And he says, continue in that faith. That is what helps you to grow. If you are constantly thinking that you are not in God's good graces, you will not grow in your faith. You will not stay steadfast because you'll think, here I go, messing up again, just like I always do. Why does God even want me? That's not how God sees us. He says, Stay steadfast in the faith, that hope that you have in heaven. Be stable, not shifting from that hope. The gospel of which I, I, Paul, became a minister. So we saw that the mission of Jesus Christ was to come down, to walk as a man. And I often think it's really interesting because when we think of the incarnation, which is a big word for saying God becoming a human being and living among us, why didn't God just come down as a 33-year-old man hop on the cross, die, raise from the dead, and go back to heaven. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but there is something so incredibly amazing about the fact that he chose to rely on a young mother to take care of him, that he decided to learn how to walk as God. Because it says, we'll, we'll get there next week in Colossians, it says, as you have received Jesus Christ, which is by faith, so walk in him, to walk by faith. There are so many verses in the Bible that point to how Jesus is our example. It says in 1 John, I think it's 2, 6 or something like that. Those who, uh, I don't want to misquote it because it's a good verse. Excuse me one second. When we're at church, we have the PowerPoint and I can throw the verse up like that, but I have to turn to it here. So, Can you guys hear me? I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. So. Okay. Um, yeah. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus walked. When he had to go somewhere, he walked there. And you know what? He met a lot of people on those journeys. And God calls us to do the same thing. And I find that incredible. Because that not only was God humiliating himself in the sense that he became a human being and lived among the muck and the mire and the sin and the prostitutes and the, the publicans and this and that. He chose to learn how to walk. That's crazy. I, it astounds me. I, I have to remind myself of that. He had to hang on to a human being so that he didn't fall and hit his head on the table. Is that insane? 
Sorry, that's like a little side note. But it's important that we understand that because all of that, all 30 years, the 30 years that we know nothing except for a couple stories about the life of Jesus is important because it was in that. That was his mission. His mission was come and live on earth for 30 years and die on the cross. It wasn't just come and die on the cross. And sometimes we kind of, we, we make it one event and that's it. But the mission, Jesus was a missionary. He came from another world to a third world country, essentially, you know, and he came and he lived and he understood and he calls us to do the same things, which is where we're going to transition here in verse 24. There's the mission of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished on the cross when he said it was finished. And now there's a ministry, a service of Jesus Christ that he calls us to do because Jesus ascended into heaven and he actually said in the gospel of John, which is uh, flabbergasting, is that a word? It says, it's better for you that I go away because I'll send the helper to you. I'll send the Holy Spirit. When Je- as long as Jesus was on earth, the disciples were just like, okay, Jesus, go do it. We'll stand back and watch. And Jesus was constantly saying, you go and do it. He sent them out to do. And as long as Jesus was on earth, the disciples would always be relying on him to show them. But Jesus was not, he was with them, but he was not directing them. He was not guiding them in the sense that we actually have the ability now that the spirit of Jesus Christ lives inside of us to go and do the things that Jesus did. And he said, you will do these same things that I do. And then a really weird verse, which I don't have time to get in, it says, you will do greater works than these, which people go really crazy with that. And they start to say that we can kind of do whatever we want and make God do our bidding. And I don't get into that. But what it says is when you have faith to understand who it is that lives inside of you, which we'll talk about in a second, you'll understand what you've been called to do and why God has called you to be his ambassador. We'll talk about that. In verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. So that was one sentence. And Paul's really famous for that. But let's take a look at this. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I thought Jesus was a cure-all pill that you took and your problems went away. That's what I heard on TV. That's what somebody told me when they handed me a track. Man, come to Jesus. He fixes all your problems. Now Paul is saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the the Colossian church, but for the church at large. Because we know Paul suffered immensely. Forty lashes minus one, how many, five times he got? shipwrecked a day and a night in the in the ocean we stoned to death and came back to life as some people believe and i believe um and he went all through all of that imprisoned in chains and hunger and wants and all these things he went through it and he said i rejoice in that we could spend an hour talking about that we could spend 50 hours talking about that how do you rejoice when suffering when it says that filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. That doesn't mean that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't finish. What that essentially means is I'm going to go, I'm going where Christ never set foot. Paul said, uh, I forget where it talks about it, but he says, just as Peter was called to be an apostle to the circumcised, I've been called to be an apostle to the uncircumcised, to name Christ where he's never been named before. And if you notice, that's what Paul does. He doesn't go to a town, find all the Christians, start a church and say, cool, we got a nice Christian club going on. He goes to the towns where they don't understand Christianity at all, builds a church, 
says, here, I hand it over to you, goes to another town, finds no Christians there, builds a church, and then hands it over to the people there and moves on. He's a trailblazer for the kingdom of God. So what he's saying when he says, I fill up what is lacking, is every time he went to a town and he got whipped and stoned and beaten and all the things that he went through, he was accomplishing that which Christ had called him to do because Christ only, while he, he only had a limited time on earth. It was only 33 years. He, and he stayed mostly within the, the confines of his hometown because it says, he actually said that I came to re- speak to the lost sheep of Israel, which we don't always think about that, is that Jesus actually came for the sake of Israel. That's who he, his mission field was. And he did that so that when they rejected him, his disciples would go into all the world and make more disciples. Does that make sense? Sorry, I'm really like screaming and thinking a lot. And I apologize if it's coming out as rambling. But he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship. You guys know what that means? Some Bibles say dispensation, which is an even bigger word that it's hard to explain. But a stewardship is kind of an easier translation. When someone makes you the steward of something, they're entrusting something to you something that is not yours to care for. And they're saying, here, it's yours now. Paul is doing this because God had entrusted this mission to him, this ministry, as it were. It says, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, I want to talk about this suffering for a little bit because, as I said, people get really uncomfortable with this because I would like to be able to tell you that Jesus Christ makes your problems go away. He makes the biggest problem go away, which is that irreconcilable difference between you and God. But, in all honesty, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you might find a whole new crop of problems that you never had when you weren't a Christian. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, your family hates you or doesn't like you or doesn't understand what... That wasn't... You had problems, but you didn't have those problems, you know? You had problems with your finances, but you didn't have your coworkers saying, I thought you were a Christian. Why are you struggling? You know, you didn't have all these external things. They weren't a concern of yours. But now you're facing all this hardship. And on top of that, we're called to shine as a light and preach the gospel. That's a hardship, okay? That's suffering. And Paul says, I rejoice in that. So how can we rejoice in that? And I just want to point this out. Um, There's an awesome verse that says in Philippians 1.29. Sorry. For it has been granted to you granted, which makes you sound like a wish from a genie, right? Your wish is granted. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, yay, but also suffer for his sake. No, I don't like that. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And you're like, wait a minute, Paul, you still have conflict? I thought you were, and you have to remember, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, I think, were written in prison. And Paul's talking about all these great things. So we can't forget that when he says the things that I'm going through are actually causing the gospel to go further and to have more fruit. Why do we think that God hasn't also called us to that ministry? In my opinion, I want God to call me to the ministry where 
I'm in an AC building. There's 500 people there. They're chanting my name. I have a Lexus, and I, the best part is I don't have to talk to any of those people. I can just come up, leave, go to my $10 million house. Awesome. NBR TV, it's going to be great. Because, sadly, and I'm not trying to badmouth anybody, that's what's presented as true Christianity, is claim it. You know, reach out and take it. Because if something as bad is happening to you, all you have to do is say, I don't believe it's actually happening, and therefore it doesn't happen anymore. No, I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible says. Now, that's not to say that we don't have joy in those circumstances, and in spite of those circumstances, but we have to be careful because if Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, said that I am going through conflict, it's because he was doing something right. In John 15, which is... A promise, we love the promises of Jesus that say, I will never leave you or forsake you. We love the promises that say, no one will snatch you out of my hand. But very, very rarely do we hang on our refrigerator promises like, they hated me, so they're going to hate you. Or, you know, he that suffereth to the end and endures will be saved. Like, the verses like that, we're like, well, I don't like that. But... It's there. 2 Timothy um, 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Will, not might. Will. Which is crazy. I I saw somebody, uh, it's a quote from Leonard Ravenhill. And he says, If Jesus preached the same message that ministers preach today, he would not have been crucified. Which I find very, very, very edgy, but I kind of understand what he means. Because the message of Christianity has become very soft. It has been, God loves you and he saves you even though you're a sinner, period. There's no, he saved you from your sins. And he calls you to live and to go and make disciples. That kind of disappears. It's all about this, like, what I get out of God and God is my free, che- you know, blank checkbook for what, however I want to live. It's, you know, it's, it's a very... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Impotent gospel, for lack of a better term. It really is. Because once someone starts to experience suffering and persecution for their faith, they become that one that the sun beats on. You know, the seed is planted and the sun beats and the tribulation comes and they have no root and they're not grounded and they wither. That's why he started off the book of Colossians encouraging them to go and bear fruit, to bear more fruit by the power of the gospel. Not the, you know, the Jesus, is, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Which is true. All of those things are true, but that's not the gospel. And oftentimes we neglect what the gospel is, which is the fact that, as we spoke of earlier, Jesus came as a man and died for the sins of all mankind and gave us a way to be free from sin and joined back together with God. If, I, if my life goes really well and I die separated from God, what is that? That's not the gospel. No one preached me the gospel if that's what happens, right? So I'm really fiery tonight. I apologize. <laughs> but uh, this is so important because it's not only is it the mission of Jesus Christ to save mankind from their sins, but he's entrusted us with a mission. And he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to hold to the teachings that I gave you. That was a paraphrase. But that's essentially what he said. So what did Jesus say to do? 
he said, go make disciples. So we should be making disciples and say, okay, now you go and do the same thing. There's a ministry there. When people say, I'm involved in ministry, what does that mean? Does that mean that you set up the chairs? Great. That's awesome. We need people to set up the chairs at church. Does that mean that you do Sunday school? Even better because you are reaching the next generation. But ministry isn't stuff that we do. Ministry is serving the Lord. So when, when Jesus Christ has given us a mission and we become his servants, essentially, when we place our faith in him, we are enlisting. And I always say, you know, like um, people think that becoming a Christian is grabbing the crutches out of weakness. But becoming a Christian is enlisting in the war, for the, uh, the sacred war for the souls of mankind. It's not weakness becoming a Christian because you are in for hardship. It's actually the harder way to go, but it's the more rewarding way to go. Um, verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. It's not, hey, I gave somebody a tract and they, they prayed the prayer and I never saw them again. Because it, it doesn't bring forth maturity in their life. It's important that we, and I, I struggle with this because I shy away when people when it requires my full commitment to interact with somebody and to bring them along in the, in the principles of Jesus Christ and to grow them into, as a disciple, because I need someone to do that to me first. You know what I mean? Like I can't, I can't reach a level on my own because I get in my own way a lot. That's why God puts us with a community of believers because people can point out things with love and say, this is hindering you or this is keeping you from getting to the next level with the Lord. And uh, it's really important that we not only find people to do that for ourselves, but we are making ourselves available to do that with other people. Because the goal is maturity in Christ. Because if we're immature, you know, Paul says, you all should be able to teach by now, but you're still babes and drinking milk. You should be chewing on meat. You know, if you're constantly going through the same cycle of, Jesus died for my sins, I'm a sinner, and I'm glad. But you're not digging into the word and you're not coming to an understanding the wisdom of Jesus Christ is not pouring in and out of you then you can't go and make other babes into mature Christians which is what he calls us to do it says um, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me so this isn't Paul going look at me I'm awesome I do all this great stuff and you should too. Because there are other verses where you get the feeling like Paul's like saying, I'm the model Christian. But he says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. You know, he knows where he came from. But he says things like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And you're like, that sounds really arrogant, Paul. How dare you? But what he says here puts it in perspective. He says, I'm toiling, but the struggle is through his energy that he is powerfully working within me. It's God doing the work. Paul is yielding to Christ in him, which is the hope of glory, he said. Now, this idea, like, what is he talking about here? I want, if you could, uh, turn to 1 Peter. Peter talks a lot about suffering, a lot about it, because he was front line, right? 
you know, we see him in jail two different times, I think, in Acts, or maybe just once. He gets beaten and told, don't preach about Jesus anymore. And it says they go out and they celebrate that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Crazy. But in 1 Peter, a common theme is suffering for God's glory. So if you want to be reminded of what we're called to do, you got to read the book of 1 Peter. It says in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called. Jesus called us from darkness to light. He called us out of our sin and into a righteous life. But he also called us out of the comfort level of this world and into the battlefield of the spiritual world. And, uh, you know, as I said before, the word of God is there to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that, that's a nice little catchphrase that I stole from somebody else. But it's true, because when you read stuff like this, you're like, wait a minute, I thought I was called to have, have joy and have an abundant life. You were, and he's giving you the how-to. It's to commit yourself fully to him and have joy in spite of suffering, in spite of preaching the gospel to people and having them reject you, which is what the disciples essentially did their entire lives. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Remember we talked about how Jesus walked as a human being on this earth? So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he calls us to do the same thing. Remember it said he entrusted us with the ability to suffer for him? That's what he's called us to. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter knows a thing or two about suffering. He goes on in chapter 4, says in verse 12, You know, I said before, people start to go through hard times as a Christian, and they're like, I must have sin in my life. It must be something. I don't know what's going on. Let me just start praying really hard, and and hopefully God will take that problem away. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If only when I went through a trial, I had this perspective. What is this? This is just another trial perfecting me, making me more like Christ. I I don't have that perspective, unfortunately. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Does that sound familiar? We just talked about that. That you may also rejoice, check this out, and be glad when his glory is revealed. How is his glory revealed in our suffering? Well, remember what the mystery of God is? It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It said before that he was beaten and reviled and he didn't revile again. It said that he died on the cross and by his wounds we've been healed. Keep bear that in mind for a second. I'm going to read, it says, in verse 19. Oh no, I'm sorry, uh, verse 14 of uh, 1 Peter. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
And then if you move down to verse 19, it says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Again, that, that idea of entrusting. He's entrusted to us something remarkable, which is to be his ambassador. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this will be kind of the last place we, uh, we set up camp. <clears throat> it's my favorite chapter in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> it says in verse five, chapter 5, verse 18... All this is from God, who gave, I'm sorry, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Remember we talked about at the beginning, the mission of Jesus Christ was to reconcile the world to himself. And now he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's entrusted to us the continued work of God. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Oftentimes we put God as the big angry judge, Jesus as the loving friend, and he like got in the way of God's divine wrath and was like, God, don't punish them, punish me instead. And God was like, all right, fine. Right? That's kind of how we per- perceive it, even though we would never admit that. We think of God as like the big thou shalt not of the Old Testament. And Jesus came as God love, you know, sheep on his shoulders as he walks through a field, you know, carrying the little lame sheep and all that stuff. That's how we picture Jesus. But if you remember... Whose will in the garden was it that he would die on the cross? It was the Father's will, right? He said, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. So it was the Father's will that Jesus would provide salvation and reconcile the world back to God. So we can't put God as the big bad guy and Jesus says, acting independently from God. They're all together. Remember, we saw that it said that the fullness of God dwells in Christ's body, which is crazy. I mean, it's, I'm not trying to explain it as though I understand it. I don't. I'm just reading what the Bible says. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. As much as we believe in a trinity, we have to believe in the oneness of God at the same time, that neither part of the Godhead acts independently of the other without all three being in agreement. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit doesn't do something, and Jesus is like, why did you do that? Oh, oh, well, you're the Holy Spirit, you're God, you can do whatever you want. You know what I mean? Like they, It's this union that we'll never quite understand. But what's interesting is that he calls us to be one with him as he and the Father are one. So God wants us to understand that in some way, shape, or form. Um, I lost my spot in 2 Corinthians, sorry. Yeah, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll read this other verse from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. You can write it down if you're taking notes. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. He's talking about the prophets. They weren't prophesying for themselves, but you. First Peter's talk, or Peter's talking to his audience here. In the things that you have now been an, announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's a big, long section of scripture, but you can tackle that on your own homework. Essentially, what he's saying is the prophets didn't quite understand, but they knew that God was going to reveal the Messiah and that the Messiah was going to suffer and that after he suffered that there would be a glorification that was coming. It says God revealed to them that they were talking about people in the future, which is us, right? Hebrews 10, there's another verse. Sorry, I got tons of verses here. I can, I'll... I'll send them to you if you want them. You can come and talk to me afterward. This is awesome. It says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, meaning you came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That means that they had a hope in heaven. They were not living for this earth. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So, I know this is a lot of stuff, and I apologize that I'm throwing at you. Um, The light of Christ's glory, right? We talked about how does, how does our suffering bring glory to Jesus Christ? But God doesn't call us to be perfect human beings and to reflect a perfect Christianity so that people are enticed to believe in Jesus. We're not to persuade people to become Christians. We're called to point them to Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do the work. The amazing thing is, it says in... 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure is Christ inside of us, living and powerful, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Remember Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. The suffering that we endure as Christians, and we see it across the world, that Christians are suffering for the sake of the gospel, even if we may not be feeling it here in America yet. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We saw that before. It says that the glory will be revealed through us during our sufferings. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What is he talking about here? When we are beaten down by this world, and we are beaten down by the enemy, it leaves its mark. Those are the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Those are the afflictions of Jesus Christ. The wounds, as it were. But as we know, it says, by his wounds we are healed. The light of Christ's glory can be seen through our wounds. You understand? If we're a pot, a jar of clay, and it's cracked, even though God sees us as not cracked, the world does see the cracks. But the good thing about those cracks is that the light of Jesus Christ can shine through them. 
so that when we endure these trials and tribulations for the sake of the mission that Jesus has put us on, it's so that he, his glory shines through imperfect vessels because of the truth that God sees, which is a completely whole, reconciled person that was created in the image of God. Does that make sense? So don't be discouraged if you face hardship or, or trials because it says we've been called to that. If we aren't, then let's do some inventory and understand maybe, maybe there's something else that Jesus is calling us to do, to shake things up. You know, they say you don't know what flavor somebody is until you put them in hot water, right? Like a tea bag. I should have said like a tea bag first so you knew what I was talking about. But um, the mission of Christ and the ministry of Christ, it's so important for us to understand that we've been entrusted to continue the work of Christ here on earth. And even though we may not be perfect this side of heaven, on that side of heaven where God sees us, we are. So that should be our perspective as we go out into the world and preach the gospel. Amen.